There was an announcement for Storm's King Thunder, which is a new adventure. Storm King's Thunder. What did I say? Storm's King. Yeah, the Storm's King Thunder. No, you just did it again. Whatever. <laughs> you want to try it overtime? Nope. We're rolling. Lending Library in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 47 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about that most predictable of players, the specialist. But first, the party confronts an old enemy in the Morning Glory campaign, and the hoplite either comes home with his shield or on it in the character creation forge. So before we get to that, we got a lot of D&D news. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet. I guess it's probably about a month old by the time this is going to be released. But Don't, don't tell them that. Okay. <laughs> we have noticed <laughs> there was an announcement for Storm's King Thunder. So it's a levels 1 through 11 plus adventure. And I think the main thing to take away from it for most players is that it will introduce rune magic, which was previewed in an Unearthed Arcana. It's a Forgotten Realms adventure. It's giants, again... I think giants are cooler than dragons, i got to be honest. <laughs> All right. There are a lot of iconic old-school adventures that feature giants, so I'm fine with it. I would like eventually to start moving away from the giants. Or not Forgotten Realms would be fine yeah, for me. Yeah, maybe. You know? <laughs> Whatever. I actually want to talk about rune magic because that really worries me because the first rune magic was bad. It was awful. It was bad. So we'll see about enchanting your own weapons. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, that's due out in September. In November, we're getting Volo's Guide to Monsters. Yeah, it's like the MM2, but seriously Forgotten Realms themed in the same way that Sword Coast Adventures Guide was. Yeah. So you're getting expanded entries for things like uh, Mind Flayers. You're getting new monsters that you may remember. The Varguil. That's the floating vampire head, right? Yep, the Neogi. The don't, don't know what those are. <laughs> spacefaring slavers. Oh, right. Yeah, aberrant slavers, I believe. And the frog hemoth, which I can only imagine is a giant frog, and I love it. I, I'm hoping that's what it is. Do not let me down, wizards. Do not let me down. <laughs> We're also getting, and this is probably the most exciting, new playable races. New races, yeah. The goblin, orc, and furbolg. And maybe a few others. It says it includes those, so we'll see. Right. The, the Furbolg, for those of you who don't know, is just a giant Irish giant. Oh, giant Irish giant, huh? Or even an Irish giant. An Irish giant. Yeah, the the cool thing about Volo's Guide, and I'm you know we're definitely going to pick that up because it's more DM and player content, but they have an alternate cover art for hobby stores. So there's the basic cover that's going to be in line with the art style of all the previous 5e line. Right, which you'll get if you order on like Amazon, Amazon or something. Amazon, right. But if you go to your FLGS, you can pick it up with an all black and uh, like a white stencil cover that looks really cool. The art for it is available online, but that's going to be unique to hobby stores. So it feels like Wizards is finally supporting hobby stores a little more directly than just undercutting them on Amazon prices. Yeah, and it's just going to be one printing of those. So you're going to want to get it as early as you can. Yeah, if you're you're the collector type, you're going to want to pick that up. So I, I think that's a good way to get full price for a fifth edition book for somebody who cares about that sort of thing right and it gives a compelling reason to actually go into 
your local store rather than just ordering online from Amazon. Yeah, something other than, hey, out of the kindness of your heart, support your local store. Yeah, I know. That's the <laughs> hardest $20 I spend. <laughs> Extra $20. But that's due out in November. But more immediately, there was an unearthed arcana which had new feats. And this is the first time since the game came out that we've had new feat material. Yeah, we like feats. Feats were the optional rules in the PHP and then summarily ignored since. So took a couple years, but we got Mike Merles on the job giving us new feat content. The best part about this Unearthed Arcana is that he walks us through the kinds of things that are necessary to design a good feat and then things to avoid when creating them as well. They're very useful for those of you who are homebrewing and trying to come up with your own. Yeah, I really appreciated his design concerns and the things that he looks at are in a lot of ways the same things we look at when we look at Dungeon Master's Guild material. So it gave me a little confidence that we're viewing things in the right lens. I don't always agree with his implementation and alternatives though. Mm -hmm. So he gives an example of a feat called Warhammer Master that he's written and then says why I hate this feat. And then he corrects it as a more generic version called Fell Handed uh, and explains why it's slightly better. But one of the things he notes in the Warhammer Master is it has the ability to knock away a foe's shield. Basically, if you hit it, you can, instead of dealing damage, force it to drop its shield. It notes that that's something that any character should be able to attempt, right? It's not currently covered directly in the rules, so it's the type of thing that anybody could try if they wanted to. If you make a specific mechanic around it tied to this feat, it makes players feel like they can't do it unless they have the Warhammer Master feat. Right, So it actually limits the flexibility of the system by introducing a mechanic. And that is one of the things that we're always looking to avoid because it was a huge problem in any of the system bloat generation and especially in 3rd edition. Yeah, I think in general it's pretty easy to determine if a feat is too strong or too powerful just by looking at the mechanical bonuses. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a consideration that I think a lot of people miss out on and it's nice to have it spelled out that you don't want to give an ability that you want to be able to offer somewhere else. Yeah, it's like right now you would use like the history skill to cover events that happened as well as say like noble houses and heraldry and that sort of thing, right? It just all kind of rolls into that. But if you then introduce a skill called heraldry, well, now you've carved out piece, a piece of history and said, you can't know that with history. You have to know it with another skill. And that's, that's what he's worried about creating by adding these mechanics for these types of actions. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. To be clear, you, as a GM, you could say, oh, no, you can still use history for that. But then you're just punishing the player who took the heraldry. Who took heraldry because yeah. that's a worse history, mm -hmm. right? So one of these options is either weaker or a trap. However, we're not really big fans of the, the actual <laughs> feat that he comes up with. Yeah, I don't love them. <laughs> yeah. One problem is there's a bunch of weapon mastery feats, and all of them include a plus one bonus to attack. Now, that may seem like it's not very much, but when you're dealing with bounded accuracy and the maximum AC in the entire game at CR 30 is 25, a plus one matters a lot. Yeah. It's already easy to hit, but that extra plus one makes it that much easier. It reduces the chance that you're going to miss by a third, a half sometimes. Yeah, there's a reason that we don't have plus five magic items anymore, mm -hmm. right? But we've now effectively created plus four with a feat. The other part that I am torn on because I like it as a mechanic, but I hate it because it's been introduced too late, is it has effects that trigger off the second die 
in your advantage and disadvantage rolls. I hate that mechanic. Uh, well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think if it was used from the ground up. But so basically how it works is when you roll an attack with advantage, if the lower number that you rolled would hit, then you also knock the target prone. Conversely, if you roll with disadvantage on a melee attack, if the higher number, the one that you're ignoring, would have hit, then the target takes bludgeoning damage equal to your strength. So it gives you either an added-on effect on two good rolls or a mitigated effect on a good roll and a bad roll. I'm fine with that. I think that's a cool way to add more effects to combat and make it a little like swingier or whatever. I feel like there's a lot of things that should have been designed that way from the beginning, and adding this on after the fact becomes a huge problem. See, I like the idea of it, but... The thing I liked about advantage and disadvantage was that it was one roll, one calculation. And now yeah. you're still doing one roll, but you're doing the math twice. twice. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some of you do that very quickly. We all have players at our table who take forever to do the math. And now they've got to do it twice and hold both those numbers in their head and compare them both to a single number. Mm-hmm. If this had been implemented as if the second die that you would have ignored is a 10 or greater... You know, so you just have to look at the number and there's no calculation required. Yeah. I think maybe that could have worked. Yeah. I mean, so it's like a 50-50 chance. Yeah, basically. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, there's lots of ways to use that second die in mechanics. I just think it's too late to do that. <laughs> like, other things should have been using that all along. So all of the feats that are added in are basically mastery of a certain subgroup of weapons. So that that example came from fell-handed, which is hand axes, battle axes, great axes, warhammer, and maul. There's also blade mastery, which is for... Basically all swords. Swords, yeah. That's wonky. It lets you <laughs> use your reaction on your turn to get a bonus to AC. A plus one bonus okay. to AC. Not a good bonus. Yeah. Also, it's a it's a reaction that isn't actually triggered by something, which is strange i'm wondering if we're going to start seeing the reaction as just another resource another that spendable. Gets used. Yeah. yeah i don't like that at all mm-hmm. i think a reaction as its name implies should react to something <laughs> right otherwise it just be it should just be like an off-hand action. action yeah yeah, or, yeah off-turn action a round action if you will my main problem with the weapon mastery feats is that the plus one is very good and the other abilities are very situational or not very useful so it's still often good for you to take them, but you're not going to get much use out of them other than the mechanical plus one. So it's almost like in 4E where you had these feet taxes. You have to take it, but it is super boring. Right, yeah. You're not, you're not getting anything out of it. Exactly. Interesting. And I mean, it's probably only the fighter who's going to really have the extra feats to take these things. Mm. You know, maybe a barbarian is lightly enough on his ASI usage that he can do it, but... I would try to cram it in, though, on pretty much any melee character, especially the non-fighters, because they've got fewer attacks. So you want to make sure that the ones that you do get hit, and especially something like a paladin or a rogue, where most of your damage is not coming from your weapon. It's coming from the extra damage you're adding, which only happens if you hit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the rogue especially, because you have to hit on your turn, Mm -hmm. or you waste your sneak attack, so... Then the second half of this I like is the tool feats. I know you're a little more lukewarm on it, mm. but they're feats that are tied around tool proficiencies. So they all give you proficiency in some type of tool. And then if you already have the proficiency, give you double proficiency expertise in that tool. So make sure you have the tool proficiency. Right. They all give you an increase to one of your stats. So intelligence, dex, charisma, con, I think, depending on which tool set it is. And then they give you some 
mechanical benefit of using those tools, usually to rest or something. I think the abilities are, are really cool, but they sort of fit into the same category as the actor feat, where if you're not playing a character that specifically needs to be able to do this one ability, there's no real reason to take it. Yeah, you're never going to dabble in alchemy. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just not worth it. And my main problem with these feats in particular is that they're not scalable. You know, the alchemist can identify a potion by looking at it and can maximize a healing potion during a short rest. But like at high levels, well, why are you using healing potions? Yeah, you don't use healing potions. Yeah, it's, it's so useless. Yeah, <laughs> the ones that you can get are not useful and the ones that you that are that useful, are useful too, expensive. too expensive yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the gourmand everyone else gets two extra hit dice during a long rest well that's great at level four when you probably can't get the feet and at level 14 who cares about two extra hit dice you have 14 hit dice uh, that's the one that i do like because it's the cooking tools <laughs> and like I, I think that's cool you know like it, no these are all you bring cool. the camp cook you know <laughs> sam Gamgee walking around with his like pots oh. never mind i hate it <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't the orcs notice them? Right. It was so loud. <laughs> uh, that one actually gives you, it, it lets you cook a meal for your party and then gives them advantage on con saves versus disease for the next 24 hours. So that one is actually a scaling and limited, though useful ability. Yeah, at least it's magical diseases too. Right. Paladin doesn't care. Paladin <laughs> cares not for the that. Monk, Neither yeah. does the monk. The monk or doesn't the, eat. Or the druid. I think the yeah, druid will, yeah. 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 So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing I will note, the feat for Thieves' Tools doesn't give you any added effect. And Merle's notes in his explanation of why he likes them that that's because Thieves' Tools are already well integrated into the traditional three pillars of the game, so they don't need another benefit. So just getting expertise in Thieves' Tools and a plus one to dexterity is enough. I don't know that I necessarily agree that it's enough, but I do appreciate the direction that, hey, this is already more integral. We don't need to further improve it. Yeah, his reasoning is sound in principle, but in practice, a feat called burglar, I feel like should help you in some way to locate those traps too. Yeah, it should be good for burgling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really good at disabling traps, but the way that I find them is by walking it's into by walking them. into them, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think from the overall mission here of make tools a more integral part, right? Let them feature a little more heavily because they don't naturally fit into the three pillars of the game. I think that's a good objective and I, I do like that so if they started making these types of feats or if someone on the dm's guild wanted to create these tool proficiency feats i think that's a great design space so let's see where we are in the morning glory campaign last week the party teleported to the drow village in zendrick because they learned that the book of vile darkness which potentially contains the true names of fiends is there. They know that because they had it at one point and then gave it to the Drow Queen. That was a mistake. <laughs> she took a book and 2,000 gold and then cast us down into... Balashir's pit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To fight aberrations until we died. Well, then Lou Meteor swarmed her entire village and then you guys teleported out of there, so... Yeah, we dabbed on him. <laughs> but when the party shows up, the giant Sibirishar that they know is the center of the Drow village has been replaced, and instead there is just a 150-foot-tall tower of gooey chitin. So, looks quite aberrant. I guess we know who won. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, between Belashira and the Drow Queen Ariadne. So the Drow were mostly vampires and undead, 
and then of course Belashir was a Dalkir, a horrible abomination from the far realm of Zoriat, who were locked in a thousand year struggle, but, or were, were locked were in locked, a thousand yeah. year struggle. So once we went inside this disgusting right. tower, party cuts its way through the yeah. outer crustaceous layer. We found uh, undead aberrations. Ooh, zombie beholders. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, those are actually in the monster manual. Uh, those are death tyrants, right? <laughs> there are death tyrants. There are also just beholder zombies, which I, you know, upped to a decent level. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, also death tyrants. <laughs> <laughs> I remember having a bit of a Benny Hill situation in this one with, <laughs> didn't we accidentally force cage one and then forget about it or something? <laughs> You banished them. Oh, yeah, we banished it and mm-hmm. then walked away. And then a minute later, it comes rolling back down the hallway to come fight us. <laughs> Which worked okay for a while because it would be, oh, no, there are three death tyrants. Quick, banish, banish. Let's kill this one. Right. Okay, now let's camp and wait. Someone look at your watch. And here it is. Well, that worked the second time. Yeah, the first <laughs> yeah, time. The first time, the first time it just good. came back to us. <laughs> the first time it was great because this is a tower. So you were sort of working your way up. But there weren't really walls it was mostly like gooey ramps yeah uh you know covered in like mucus and so the beholders would just sort of hit you with their um repulsor rays and knock you off uh the ramps and of course you know some of you were prepared and had feather fall or could fly and others couldn't (laughs) (laughs) but you did eventually sort of climb your way to the top and fight your way through you kept cutting through like walls made of like bits of pulsing undead muscle and it was pretty gross it was disgusting yeah but it did pay off because when you finally got to the top of it... Revenge. No, not really. <laughs> well, you were looking for revenge on the Drow Queen, but it wasn't really her who was waiting for you. She had clearly lost her fight against Belashira because they appeared to be merged. Her sort of undead animated body was now very aberrant. Tentacly. Yeah. yeah. So the Dalkir trapped in Kyber and Belashir had initially drawn Lou down to her chamber to force Lou to allow a possession essentially to figure out a way to get out of Kyber. And now it seemed like Belashir had, had sort of, kind of figured out how to get out of there. Found a better host. <laughs> and seemed very happy to see you. Although you guys were not so happy to see her. No. And then as became tradition... <laughs> When faced with your mortal enemy, (laughs) what do you do but call on Cube for optimization? (laughs) This time it was Lou, the great old one warlock's turn, because she had quite the vendetta. Yeah, she was less upset with Ariadne, more upset with Belashira. (laughs) I killed you once. Right. (laughs) I'm going to kill you again. Right. Which is great, because Lou was really sort of the absent-minded professor of the group. Right. So it was great when she was like, optimize me. Um... Eldritch Blast, yeah. eight times. Eight times. <laughs> All crits. <laughs> An epic battle ensues, but as expected, eventually a party of six versus one horrible abomination. Eventually you guys did win. We did. And Lou did strike the, the final blow. And then Bran notices a chest near Belashir's throne. So I don't want to say that I knew this as a player, but I definitely <laughs> lucked into it. I poked the chest <laughs> before opening it. You telekinesis the chest. That's right. You're like, I grabbed the chest with telekinesis and I flip it upside down to dump things out because I don't want to deal with the traps. Right. There <laughs> wasn't a trap. It was a mimic. It was a mimic. <laughs> <laughs> and I never got my gold back. <laughs> However, once you killed the mimic and you did open it up weirdly, it was kind of gross in there. There was... A book bound in humanoid skin. 
So we found our book of vile darkness. Mm -hmm. And Brand proved to the party something about yourself. Still not evil. (laughs) Still couldn't open the book, which can only be opened by evil creatures, so they heard. Which actually just made people doubt the veracity of that legend. Because <laughs> right. Calic was definitely like, no, you're definitely yeah, no. evil. Evil people can yeah. definitely are not the only people. Yeah. <laughs> there must be something else that's keeping you from opening it. <laughs> so the party is sitting around going, okay, we need to open this book. Apparently none of us are evil. Who knew? But we need to get inside because there are true names inside and we need those in order to kill immortal beings. And one of you has a bright idea. I think we know where we can find someone who's evil. And we'll find out who (laughs) next week. So this week, we're continuing our series on player personality types. So episode 30, we talked about munchkins and power gamers. In episode 38, we talked about method actors. Today, we're talking about specialists. A specialist is a player who really favors a particular character type. And they often play it in every kind of campaign, in every kind of setting, in every kind of rpg it's just oh okay yep you're bringing the invulnerable flyer again oh okay yeah of course you're sneaking around and you're gonna steal things thank you rogue right it's the player that is always a quote-unquote ninja right shadow run ninja in dnd ninja eclipse phase transhuman ninja right (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's a knight maybe they just they're always a cat folk those are not my favorite no Or it could just be the person who is always the damage dealer. You know, they always want to be the big, strong brute who hits things very hard and rolls a bunch of dice and does a bunch of damage. Right. Yeah. You could also be the combat quarterback, right? You could be the Mm -hmm. warlord or whatever it is, right? But you, you have a type and you always want to play that type. And that's fine, right? I mean, that's not a problem. It's how that player enjoys playing the game. This particular player type doesn't really map well to any of the archetypes in the 5e DMG on uh, page 6. You can have elements of several different archetypes, or really any of them, depending on what exactly the specialist player's character usually does. Yeah, the only exception is probably optimizing. is is probably the one that doesn't quite fit in with a specialist. I mean, if I had to pick a specialty. (laughs) (laughs) I will say there were two... 4e games in a row where I, I played a brutal barrage battle mind which was just massive spike damage but that is what the party required <laughs> right <laughs> there are good things about specialists as yeah, we said absolutely mm-hmm. so from a gm perspective right they're relatively easy to please mm-hmm. what they're looking for is a chance to use their specialty and show off the traits that define that specialty and the specialty usually isn't something that's overly complicated I knew a lot of players who they would always be either a druid or something with some sort of animal companion. They wanted a pet. Right. And great. Most games allow you to do that in some manner. And those are the only criteria. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like I I often play religious type characters, like divine characters. Because you enjoy blasphemy. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) As as a heretic at heart. (laughs) The other nice thing is, is they're generally party friendly because they carve out their niche, and it's always their niche, but then they respect the niches and roles of other players. Yeah, they don't want to do that thing that someone else is doing. They just want to make sure they're doing the thing that they're doing. <laughs> right, and as long as there's not you know, crossover between what some, someone else wants to do, and usually there isn't simply because everyone knows, oh, you're going to play the bruiser. Well, we'll just all play something else. Right, right. Yeah. The nice thing here, too, is it's just easy to plan for. You can reasonably anticipate 
what they want to do and how they're going to approach their problems and what abilities they're going to bring to the table. Yeah, like we said in the intro, they're generally pretty predictable. You don't necessarily know how they're going to react to every situation, but you've got a really good handle on what it is that they want out of a particular session. Right. They want the greatest hits. Just give them the greatest hits. Right. You know, <laughs> play free bird. <laughs> they're going to be happy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just do my sneaky ninja stuff. All right. Yeah. Chance to sneaky ninja. I'm good. Yeah, unless you have to fight them on it, why fight them on it? Right. You know, like every game has some sort of sneaky character. Let them call themselves a ninja. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So specialists can be a problem though, Mm -hmm. right? Not the least being if there's two people who want that specialty, you can have a conflict there. Yeah, I just want a chance to play this, man. You always do. You're always the rogue. Can I please try the rogue? Mm -hmm. Right. That can be a problem. That's, That's usually an above the table kind of problem. You also can run into problems if the rules don't model his specialty very well. So either they don't support the concept, like trying to use a net as a fighter Mm -hmm. in 5e, or you just have a problem of low base chance of success, right? If you play relatively incompetent characters, if it's difficult to succeed at all, it's not going to feel like that specialty. You're not going to ever get to use those traits because you just fail too often in general. Like if you're the sneaky guy and your chance of succeeding on sneaking is 30%, well, you're not that sneaky, regardless of how much sneakier you are than the guy next to you. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they have a 5% chance. Yeah. If you have a 35% chance, it's still, still going to feel like you're a bumbling and very loud. Exactly. We run into this with the character creation forge, actually, fairly often when we're trying to build something that, you know, they, they typically appeal to a, a specialist. But, you know, if you want a pet in 5th edition... Beastmaster Ranger is not the way to go. No, it's bad. Chain Pack Warlock apparently is the way to go. Right. But probably a specialist player who wants a pet, they're not usually wedded to the Warlock flavor. Exactly. You also run into the Batman problem. This happens probably a lot more in superhero games, but you have someone who wants to be or play a specific character or someone very much like them. Right. And there are very concrete tropes or abilities that this character needs to have and that's often very difficult to model exactly in a role-playing game yeah especially if it's bending genre yeah batman in dungeons and dragons is a wizard right with a bunch of a belt full of scrolls right and and it's hard to not kill <laughs> in D. <D&D, laughs> you know? he's, he's an enchantment wizard <laughs> right <laughs> you also run into this problem of well how come i'm getting hit so much batman never gets hit that much yeah like I'm basically Superman, so why is this hurting me? Well, because you can't actually be Superman in the system, right? Yeah, because otherwise it's boring. Right, right. You're Superman, but you're Batman, but. Superman comics are boring enough to read. Right. <laughs> We're not going to play through it. That was the sound of all of our Superman fans turning <laughs> off the podcast. He has terrible writers. Moving on. <laughs> the challenge of Superman is not surviving. Right. <laughs> all right, so... Another problem is if the specialty just doesn't fit your plot or theme very well. Things like if you're running Dungeon Crawl Classics, you're in a dungeon delving specific campaign. Well, the diplomat is going to have a hard time. You can't talk through many problems in a dungeon. Yeah, we can build an amazing diplomat in 5e who's probably almost never going to fail, but there's no opportunity to use it. Right, yeah. I mean, every time you run into intelligent humanoids, maybe, but... 
that's relatively limited in a lot of situations, right? Yeah, and even as a GM, obviously you want to try to introduce the scenarios where your players have moments to shine, but how are you going to do that with any kind of verisimilitude when you've already set out, okay, this is a dungeon delve? Right. Sage characters can be another problem. If it's if it's a low stakes or very localized campaign, you know, you're protecting a village against an orcish horde that's been raiding them. Well, you don't need to know all the lore of the world to know what the immediate problem is that orcs are attacking you and you have to defend yourselves. It could be a great game, but a sage just doesn't have a great place there if you're not ready to defend the walls. Right, like you're the library. Yeah. You have all the books. Right. <laughs> and then this is also usually an above-the-table problem, but it gets exacerbated with certain kinds of specialist characters. It's when using the specialty doesn't take a backseat to the group's fun when the specialty kind of collides with other players. So, for example, the thief, the sneaky, unreliable, untrustworthy thief. Uh, Kender. <laughs> who steals from the fighter and then frames the wizard. Yeah, thanks for that, guy. Uh, like, okay, we got it. You've got pickpocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got objectives here. <laughs> we don't have time to pretend we're infighting. This is my motivation. I just don't understand personal property, man. <laughs> It's strange how all of your characters get killed in the first two levels by us. Yeah. (laughs) You can also run into this problem with snipers a lot of times. That specialty just doesn't fit well in the way that games scale. So if you're always a thousand yards behind the party watching their backs, you're never involved in the in the upfront right? You're never having that conversation because you're too far away. And sometimes you have a player who is totally fine with that, but it's weird for the other players at the table where this person who's sitting here for four or five hours with us just doesn't say or do anything. Right, yeah, until an arrow comes raining in over our heads. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if a specialist player hasn't gotten a chance to use their specialty in a while, which will definitely happen for a few sessions here and there because of the direction the plot goes, sometimes they can get a little cranky. Yeah, they might act out. That might be actually the cause of the thief stealing from the fighter and framing the wizard. Right. I had no other time where I could roll sleight of hand. Right. Or, you know, this is the uncouth barbarian uh, in any type of extended talking scene, right? Well, I haven't done anything in a while, so um, I'll burp in the king's face. Like, all right, great. Thanks, barbarian player. We didn't need to spend that hour doing anything if you were just going to do that. <laughs> Guess what? That didn't cause a combat. <laughs> There's now even more talking. Right. Except now you're in jail. (laughs) (laughs) So as a GM, what do you do if you have a specialist player? This is almost like tautological, but play games that support their specialty. No. Right? (laughs) Like like if if you have somebody who wants to do something, play games that they want to do. And if if the group is going to be playing a game that isn't going to support their typical specialty well, be clear about that up front so that they can avoid a trap option. Yeah, if you have a group that's like ours where you've got a set group but then you rotate between game systems every once in a while, ideally you've been playing together long enough or you're close enough because you are doing all these different systems that the person whose specialty isn't really going to be able to be reflected in the system understands that and that can deal with it for however long you're playing that system. Yeah, I mean, we run into that sometimes even just uh, as we swap between systems and it's like, all right, so this is like the fiddliest and most mechanical build possible. Are you going to have time to actually read all those rules? Because <laughs> like, if so, like maybe, or if not, maybe we'll just pick an easier archetype. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Huckster and Deadlands. <laughs> Wait, I have to read all the rules? Yeah, exactly. Oh. 
and then this is just so easy, right? Give them chances to play those traits. Let them play their specialty and actually use it. Yeah, this isn't any different than making sure that the melee characters have something to do in combat, avoiding an entire battle that's just flying creatures. Right. If Steve always wants to play a flying character, well, don't keep locking him in dungeons with eight-foot ceilings. And sometimes make that flying really useful. Right. Sometimes make it (laughs) dangerous. Yeah, sure. Because, I mean, that's part of the appeal of flying is that... I might get shot by an arrow. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I might get caught up in a thermal and, you know, <laughs> launched far out of range of this combat. How high do you fly? Right. <laughs> Closer to the sun? Right. These wings of wax. <laughs> Even amongst some of the more typically problematic specialties, right? If you have a player who likes to pickpocket, well, set up challenges where that's actually a viable option, where mm. that could be useful to, you know, lift the keys off of the guard. Even in a non-social situation, it could be pickpocketing the grenade off the soldier's belt. Right. Or maybe just the pin. Yeah. (laughs) So I had a situation like that where I had players who needed to break into a magical shop to recover some items for their boss. Some uh, stolen items, allegedly. Did they have a ninja with them? Well, they had a shadow monk, so they kind of did have a ninja. Yeah. (laughs) But they needed a distraction, right? Because it was like a busy street. So the two muscled guys, the fighters, went and picked a fight in the street, but then had to put on this theatrical like wrestling match effectively. Oh, they picked a fight with each other. No, no, no. They picked a fight with a group of random passerby, like the burliest looking guys on the Uh street, but like they couldn't actually hurt them because... They would have just killed them outright. Right. Like they could have one punched them. So they had like <laughs> this elaborate wrestling match as a distraction to let her sneak into the shop and then sneak back out. It was kind of the thing where it's like one of them put points into strength athletics, you know, like, all right, well, I want to use my athletic skill for something. One of them was charisma based, so they want to be able to sell the, the performance. And the other one is trying to sneak in. So it was just everybody gets to use their stuff. <laughs> Yeah, this goes back to what we said lots of times. The other players in the party really like that there's a specialist. You know, I don't need to put any points into breaking and entering because you did that. Right. You know, so we go do the other thing and you handle this. Right. And I'm super happy that we don't need to kick in the door. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But you're looking at your sheet for the things that you can do, right? Mm -hmm. What are the things I'm good at? What define me? Great. I'm going to go to that first. It's nice if you can actually get into a situation where it's the other players and other characters who are trying to come up with ways for the specialist to use their specialty because they want it to be used because this person is so good at something well i mean obviously we should we should do that right 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 come on yeah like we have the gambler why don't we go win some money yeah exactly i can't gamble but i'm gonna give you money and we're gonna win some money right yeah we have the acquisitions expert let's go trade right (laughs) haggling i love when you haggle right and i don't (laughs) Oh, this is a tense negotiation we're entering? Well, it's a good thing we have that charisma guy. Right? Party face, get out there. Your specialty is healer? Perfect. The flip side of that, though, is that you also want to occasionally challenge their archetype Mm -hmm. so that it can help define and personalize their specialty. So if you have the player who's always the, you know, chivalrous, proud, noble knight, give them a moral dilemma. Let them define their chivalry or their nobility for themselves. The party face who can talk their way out of any situation. Well, there's probably at least one situation they cannot talk their way out of. And it is good, at least every once in a while, to really feel out of your depth and out of your element. Right. 
this goes back to when we were saying it, it's actually pretty easy to plan for a specialist because you're either giving them something that they can be very good at or it's just the opposite. You're giving them something that they're going to be very bad at. Right. This becomes a challenge if that player doesn't recognize it. Mm. Right. If he doesn't recognize his time to shine or her time to shine, then she might miss the opportunity to use the specialty. So that's where you could run into that. And if you have certain player profiles at the table with them, you might just be overlooked by the party. Which is where ideally the other players are going, no, no, you, you do this. Yeah. Or or as a GM, you step in and go, okay, that's a good plan. Um, but doesn't that character have something that could be useful? Mm-hmm. What's on your sheet? <laughs> like. Take it. Take a step back in this planning process, right? Yeah, never be afraid to tell your players information that their character would already know or be aware of. Right, right. You know, maybe the player is a wallflower and doesn't come up with anything, but like their character is the sage. Yeah, they know all of this stuff. They've read all of these books. Yeah, it's also important not to outshine them too much. I mean, you shouldn't really do this with any of your characters, but don't introduce an NPC that's just straight up better. Yeah, I mean, this is oceans 12 right like the oceans crew has to break in and steal something and they get there and they found out that another thief has left his calling card to mock them and they're constantly vexed by lamarck who is just better than them thanks guy (laughs) like (laughs) you see this a lot in teen comedy where there's the rival introduced at the beginning and they're just superior in every way right right and then the entire movie or series is the protagonist trying to compete with them in some way and then you know at the end they finally do that works fine for those kind of media but in a game you don't want to just be second best at everything for the entire game until maybe the end yeah you can introduce those rivals as a way to kind of push your specialist character right but you don't want them to be on screen dominating their specialty it sucks if he's already cracked the safe it's okay if the legend of Lamarck has circulated throughout the land and you know who he is. Maybe he's somebody that you look up to or a mentor or something like that, the paragon of your field. And maybe on down the line you meet him. Right. Once you've had a fun game of actually being good at something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then that's that opportunity where, oh, I don't shine right. you know, as a reversal. Right. You can also attempt to make small changes in the areas that your specialist player is comfortable in. I think we can probably agree that player growth is also good. Becoming a better player usually involves becoming more comfortable with different kinds of characters and different kinds of game systems and things like that. So maybe over time you can push a specialist player into branching out a bit. I like to start with just reflavoring stuff and then teaching them to reflavor, you know, so maybe there aren't mechanical options for the pet, but we can come up with something else and we just call it a pet. With the way that we built the swashbuckler uh, in one of our early character creation forge, where it was a sorcerer who made a bunch, had a bunch of spells to do his swashbuckler tricks. Right. But in game, none of those had to be spells at all. Exactly. You can also just slowly expand the options that they're comfortable with. So maybe they have their specialty but then the rules make it so they happen to be good at something else as well you know like uh, 5e has a pretty small skill list so if you are good at climbing you're also actually very good at swimming and jumping because it's just the athletic skill yeah or certain mechanical niches can be quick to max out right so Mm -hmm. you can finish your specialty and then kind of move on to to a secondary area as well right so if your player's like i don't really know what to put points in to now it's pretty easy to be like well do you remember that time that you almost died right 
maybe put some points in toughness. Yeah. And then I would also say, really only change one thing at a time. Yeah, go slow. Yeah, I, if you've got, you know, a catfolk archer, and there are no catfolk in this world, let them keep the archer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what if you're a specialist player? What if what if we've been talking about this and you say, oh yeah, that is me? You should be upfront about it. <laughs> yeah, I just be comfortable with it and tell the GM what you like. I like to play the party face, so however that character ends up getting built i like to be in the talky bits usually more than the combat bits <laughs> you like the hiding bits uh, yeah the hiding is my talking favorite. and hiding yeah you guys fight go fight yeah <laughs> i'll just duck out the back door <laughs> uh, yeah i almost always play some kind of jack of all trades yeah you know i i like to have contingency upon contingency and so whether that's a wizard or it's a fighter who has a bag full of different kinds of weapons because you never know what kind of monster you're going to come across those things tend to be true across all my characters. Yeah, so if you're telling your GM that, though, right, then he can help set a story that's going to highlight that for you. Mm -hmm. Of course, part of that is you have to be patient because your specialty is likely not to come up in every session. You don't need to force it, right? It's okay if there isn't a sneak mission every week. Yeah, if you're the face... Well, it might just be that this session is all combat. Stop trying to talk to them. Yeah, sometimes... You're in Belashira's pits, and you got to fight your way out. (laughs) I'm not talking to these beholders. I'm killing them. I'm not talking to these mind flayers. I'm smashing them. And then, as always, if you're not happy with it, right? Like, if you feel that your specialty isn't getting shown off enough, that it's not coming up, it's not useful enough, talk to your GM first. Don't act out. Just let him know, hey, uh, I thought I would get to do a little more sneaking around, or uh, I thought I would get to be you know, a little bit more of a noble knight, and I feel like I'm just a pit fighter. Yeah, Jim is not a specialist player, but in the Morningglory campaign, an early iteration of Kallik was a pyromancer, a fire-based wizard, and there was a long session where they were fighting mainly fire and magma elementals. And, you know, like three sessions in, he was he said, uh, you know, it would be actually really great if I could use any of my fire spells. And I was like, oh, you're you're totally right about I, nah, I kind of screwed that up. I really should have included some other kind of elemental in here so you could be useful. You uh, you learned from that mistake, though, because Brand was also fire focused and you ended up giving me a way to convert fire to radiant. So I wasn't completely toasted by all of the demons. <laughs> yeah, co- yes. Considering that by the end, you guys were fighting beans. And so <laughs> we right. all have immunity to fire. Right. <laughs> But, you know, he brought it up, which was good. And then another thing you can do is uh, try to introduce NPCs that the GM can use too. Like, give him hooks into your character as well. Yeah, this is true for any kind of character. If you give NPCs or other ways for the GM to hang a plot hook on something, that's just going to happen more often for you. But when you're the specialist and you need, for example, a Thieves Guild, introduce one. You know, it, it doesn't need to be in the town that you're in. Just mention that you had been a member of it. And that if I was a GM, I would say, oh, great. This thing has a name already. You told me what city it's based in. Right. That must be important to you. I will now use this. Yeah. Yeah. So orders, clans, guilds, cults are all nice, broad strokes to paint with. Right. And be clear about your motivations as a character. As a specialist player, you want to do a certain kind of thing in the game but that doesn't necessarily mean that your character's personality is always the same yeah or their backstory 
you as a player might want to have the best thief possible but your thief might not actually care that much about his expertise he might actually really care about recovering lost artifacts from ancient tombs and putting them in a museum if only there were a build for that (laughs) Uh, and we mentioned it earlier but you can also introduce your own rival or mentor or the paragon of your archetype that you idolize and then you have a little bit more control over introducing that into the world sort of the opposite of you know making sure that you're an orphan with no friends whose whole village was killed well that just is an invitation for the gm to come up with something for you yeah but if you say well no this person exists and we have a history and we do not like each other they're gonna come up yep do you hear that Ishan? it's the sound of my rival winning the heart of my crush again well, now that Ishan has moved on to Monster Hearts, we will move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com So we were going to give you the hoplite last week, but now we actually have the hoplite. Yeah, so let's talk about what the hoplite is historically. It is the light to medium armored ancient Greek soldier who carries a spear and a shield and fights in a phalanx. Yeah, so despite what you might have seen (laughs) in certain movies yeah not an especially glamorous combat style you're basically in a shield wall it's shield wall spear hedge very up close and personal and just kind of a mass of bodies charged at each other shield to shield poking each other with spears yeah it's less about dodging out of the way and more about standing your ground and making sure that you are behind the shield of the person to your right and your shield is in front of the person to your left exactly also, you must be right-handed. <laughs> so you're holding your shield left-handed. <laughs> For gaming purposes, though, we are going to take some liberties with with history. We're basically building the Spartans from 300. You know, they're a little more exciting and dynamic in combat than just setting a wall and charging forward. Yeah, unless you can convince everyone else in your party to play the same boring build and you just all stand next to each other and every combat is the same i mean i think that would actually be entertaining for like a one shot (laughs) if you get you guys could then turtle right yeah exactly (laughs) you guys would would assemble your wall and then slowly march forward (laughs) difficult terrain right (laughs) caltrops no so this is actually only the second build we've ever done that doesn't multi-class yeah and it is the most basic build we've ever done. <laughs> it's the champion fighter all the way to level 20. So it's the simplest fighter with very few actual special abilities. You crit. That's what you do. <laughs> On 18, 19, and 20. Right. And you make four attacks around. Yep. So you're pretty good with that spear. You are, yeah. So let's talk a bit about the spear because the spear is actually a relatively versatile weapon. It's only 1d6 piercing, so it's a simple weapon, unfortunately. But it is versatile, so if you're wielding it two-handed, it does d8. Although if you are wielding it two-handed... You've messed something yeah, else up. Failed. Yeah, And it's also a thrown weapon, so you can carry a few of them and use them at range. The range is terrible. Yeah, it's uh, 20 feet, Yeah, and then you get disadvantage up to 60 feet. Javelin's much better. 
Javelin is definitely better, but not a spear. Yeah. <laughs> the Persians used javelins. But yeah. How'd that turn out for them at Thermopylae? Probably fine. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with their greater range, uh, no, it just didn't work. Nope, it didn't. So the important thing to note here, this has to be a strength build because spear is a melee weapon. And as a even as a thrown weapon, it's keyed off of strength. There's no finesse here. So you can't use dexterity. Which sucks. Which means you should be in medium armor and just taking a 14 dex and moving on with your life. As for feats, well, Shieldmaster is the most iconic one. Yeah, yeah. So Shieldmaster gives you the ability to bash with your shield, uh, knocking prone as a bonus action. And then it also gives you some cool defensive abilities with it, uh, effectively helping you avoid damage from dex-based saves. So you are going to want to keep your dex at a decent level. Yeah. Don't dump it. And then Sentinel obviously makes a lot of sense for a shield wall type character. Yeah, you can't let someone get around and flank your line. Right. Medium Armor Master might make sense if you can get higher decks, because that will uh, give you a little bit more AC. If you like the Battle Master flavor, you could take Martial Adept to get a couple of his maneuvers and one superiority die. You could also take Mage Slayer if you fancy yourself killing a lot of mages in combat. Persians. Yeah, definitely Persians. I actually really like Magic Initiate. I wanted to build this whole character around the shield spell and yeah. an actual shield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what you would do. Uh, you get two cantrips and one first level spell. So your first level spell is going to be shield. Save that for when you really need it. And then uh, I would take Mending and Prestidigitation because that will help you repair your armor and keep it really clean. The other thing to note is that Polar Master is actually just makes it better to use a quarter staff and do all the same things you can't throw a quarter staff but you can poke it through your shield wall just the same with no limitations yeah and you can carry javelins and throw them further than you would have been able to throw that spear right so if you wanted to take polar master that would technically be a better build though also not really a hoplite i mean you could break off the end of your spear you could tie an arrowhead to the end of your quarter staff and then it looks like a spear <laughs> All right, but Ishan, <laughs> uh, tell me about your hoplite. How did you become a master of spear and shield? My hoplite is actually an athlete originally. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Started off uh, lots of training, running. So mine might actually fit in the mobile feed somewhere. You know, hit and run tactics. Because you know, in a, an actual adventuring party, you're probably not going to have a bunch of other hoplites with you true but in times of war the people who are often recruited or you know, drafted are the ones who are the most physically fit and capable and that includes all of those who are trying to make a living as an athlete <laughs> <laughs> so this is fitting with the recent passing of muhammad ali <laughs> well he didn't stand up for himself <laughs> and turns out those uh, abilities in the in the decathlon work really well on the battlefield oh okay okay they translate sure mm-hmm. so here here's a spear oh okay it's i think i know how to throw this uh, that works shield mm, took a little more getting used to sure yeah but you know strength helps <laughs> it's like a discus right right <laughs> just hold it perpendicular to the ground and then you know survived war and then once war was over struck on his own joined an adventuring party because well it's certainly more lucrative than trying to make a living as a professional athlete uh well yeah i mean probably in most fantasy worlds that's true <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely not true in real life <laughs> nathan drake was always hard up for cash i guess Lara croft had a nice mansion though 
But she was kind of independently wealthy. Yeah, she was doing it as a hobby. Right. So I would go for the uh, everyman conscripted into his nation's army who lost their war. And then got ransomed back. You know, it's when an army breaks and, and runs, you end up wherever you end up. And so if you have been trained in the military, you have a certain set of skills, you know, fighting mostly. Wouldn't take long for an adventuring party to pick you back up and set you back on a new path in life. And I think your your motivation, right, would be to try and return to your ancestral homelands and, and maybe recover important family heirlooms or stuff like that, right? So this would work great if your nation were like a borderland nation that was overrun by giants or orcs or something like that, and then they had occupied your former lands. I like the idea that the only item that they were able to keep when the army was routed was their shield yeah the sh- their family shield right, right? <laughs> you lost the spear but you always lose the spear because you're throwing are, it yeah exactly yeah, easily replaceable right yeah yeah you can't make your spear your family weapon that's just it's a lame family weapon you throw it i don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's had the haft broken off like a dozen times <laughs> in a guy right <laughs> All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And this week we have a new five-star review from Canada. I actually checked some of our international iTunes accounts and we had one. Our review will be read by poet Sasha Fletcher. Great GM tips and fun to listen to by Sign Guy Ottawa. Found this podcast while looking for something new to listen to in the realm of D&D and 5E. Wish I had found it months ago before I started my first campaign as a DM. So many great tips from building the world, creating your big villains, to even how to put your party of adventurers together. Only at episode 10, so looking forward to so much more. Also, big shout out for the great sound and producing of each episode. Love the cold opens. Always good for a laugh. And on top of that, very nicely edited, but comes off as not overly edited. Well done, gentlemen. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Sign Guy Ottawa. And thanks, Sasha. All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about metagaming. And in the character creation forge, we're building a sword mage. Well, that's it for episode 47 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Are you kidding me? Today, my resume feels alive with purpose. What does that mean exactly? I couldn't say. If I were to think about it, my head would explode, and then you would have to deal with that. It's just something I've come to believe, like how some days the sun rises in the east, and on others we continue our never-ending plea for some great event, which we will recognize as occurring once the strings kick in, and the narrator warmly and wisely intones, it was then that they fully understood their purpose in life, retired to the country, and lived happily ever after. But friends, until then, let's burn everything to the ground and keep it that way until all that we can see is dead and gone and we are finally alone with our feelings, which we are absolutely terrified of.